Support for WERU comes from Harry Brown's Farm, Starks, Maine, where there is music in the cafe at night and revolution in the air. Dig at harryshill.net and Facebook Harry Brown's Farm. May we have your attention, please, all summer residents and visitors to vacation land. Is WERU something that you enjoy every summer? Or have you just discovered community radio and thought to yourself, hey, we don't have great radio like this back home? Because you love the great variety of programming on WERU, and it has become a part of your summer experience in Maine, become a member today. Join the 2,100 individual and household members who support WERU by calling 469-6600 during weekday business hours, or give online at weru.org. Your gift will help to keep WERU Community Radio strong for another summer and many years to come. Thank you. Hey there, friends and neighbors. Do you like the hard-edged sound of a bow on the fiddle strings? Or the thumping and rapping of the banjo? Or maybe you like both, together, creating what is the essence of the old-time sound. If this is your cup of tea, then do. Tune in Saturdays at 5 p.m. for High on a Mountain, one quick hour of music that is steeped in the old-time tradition, right here on WERU, your community-supported radio station. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. A few seconds past 10 o'clock, this is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Talk of the Town with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine like and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue we hope will be of benefit to our friends and neighbors. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, since the last Ice Age, the Union River, with head of tide at Ellsworth, has been a two-way conduit between fresh and marine systems. Long part of the life cycles of fish who spend part of their lives in salt water and part of their lives in fresh, the Union River has also produced colonial and later residents with power for local industry, and two dams currently generate electricity. Well, this morning we're going to learn more about both the fish and the dams with our guests here. 
here in the studio, Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation and Morris or Mo Lambden. Um, he's, he's also a board member of the Downey Salmon Federation, but also the Union Salmon Association. Welcome to you uh, both. Uh, Dwayne, let's start with you. A little bit of background on yourself and, and uh, the, the uh, Downey Salmon Federation. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for having us and hosting the show. It's an important topic we're covering today, one of the bigger rivers in the region. And the organization that I work for and that Mo is a board member of is the Downey Salmon Federation. We're based in Washington County. It was established in 1982 to promote uh, better management of our river fisheries, including Atlantic salmon, of course. And um, I'm a fisheries biologist by training, uh, Umaine Machias in Fort Kent many years back, and I've been involved since the early 80s in, in this region. And the region that we are focused on is the Hancock and Washington County, so east of, east of the Penobscot, including uh, up to the St. Croix. So we're involved in a whole variety, all of the migratory fish, so that's everything from smelt and tomcod to endangered Atlantic salmon. Most of our work has been on the so-called wild rivers or or free-flowing rivers of Washington County, but with the advent of the um, the relicensing of the dams here on the Union River, we've gotten quite deeply involved with that. Mm. And Mo, you grew up in Ellsworth, I understand, and, and then left for the, the wilds of Alaska and, and came back. Um, tell us a little bit about your own background. Well, that's real true. I, I went to high school here, went to college in Orno, and studied wildlife management and forestry. And... Um, after a couple of years of college, I realized that, uh, you know, my future was further to the north. <laughs> and um, I was privileged to work for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game for 29 years up there and uh, learned a great deal about salmon. And when I moved back here in Ellsworth in 2008, um, I was asked to join the Union Salmon Association board. And in that process, met the Down East Salmon, or Down East Salmon Association Federation board as well. So, um, I'm, I've always been interested in fish, and um, I think this is a, a great opportunity to, you know, move in a positive direction for returning fish as well as uh, sustaining the, the local economy. Mm. And do you remember um, fishing as a as a uh, young guy, um, fishing on the Union River? What what, do you, what was your experience on the river itself? Well, I remember catching striped bass back then, mm. you know, hundreds per year, and uh, they've been pretty much non-existent since I've been back. There are apparently stripers in the Penobscot this year, which is positive. And uh, I'll probably launch my boat in the Union and go give her a shot just to, <laughs> just to go up and down the river, if nothing else. Great. But uh, um, I didn't really catch salmon in the Union River when I was in high school, but I do remember fishing the Machias, the Nerguegas, the Pleasant, the Denny's, and then several rivers up in uh, Canada as well. So um, it's exciting to see the possibility of having salmon back in the Union River. And... Uh, the Eowides, of course, they were always here as a, when I was a growing up. But uh, Elvers, of course, have developed into a major fishery here now that, uh, you know, that didn't exist when I was growing up here. Mm -hmm. Dwayne, as you've begun to look at the Union River uh, watershed, what have you found? What are some of the, the key things that we ought to keep in mind as we think about uh, the Union River? As I said, um, the head of tide is in Ellsworth, and, and, and it goes up um, with a couple of fingers into, into deep into the north part of Hancock County. That's right. It's an amazing watershed in the sense that it's uh, largely intact. The water quality is very good up above the impoundments of the lake. So the upper watershed is um, undeveloped largely. It's a, a lot of uh, historic logging practices and so on, which have 
had some in, impact, but the, generally the water quality is very good, so the potential is high for fisheries recovery. Um, it's a s- very sad story in the sense of the fisheries and wildlife um, that's played out over time, and that's largely a story of dams, and particularly for the fish, dams without fish passage. So over the years, the laws have, have been changed or interpreted in different ways, and when the the set of dams that exists now was was built, um, it essentially put the it, that was the final death knell for migratory fish, until a small stocking program began. Um, so the the dams that are there now, right above the Route One bridge, which is just out of sight, if when the leaves are off, you can see the dam just barely, but just out of sight of the Route One bridge, right past near Rooster Brothers, that many people know is a very tall dam, one of the tallest coastal dams in New England. It's about 70 feet tall. It's um, generating power, but it's not generating fish, or very, very few. So there's a trap-and-truck system that's been um, part of the license of the the hydroelectric generation that exists there now, where alewives, blueback herring, and a few salmon are trucked up and around uh, into either Graham Lake or above Graham Lake. But it's a tremendously sad story in the sense that the potential is so huge, and as we know, our fisheries are in, in disaster collapse, I would say, at this point, and we need to be thinking about how we can turn that back around. And it's um, uh, there are solutions and we're looking for a win-win. So it would be nice if we could generate power and fish and call this truly green power. But um, at this point, it, we really can't call the energy generated green when we're losing the potential of about 14 billion young of the year alewives and blueback herring that could be coming out of that system. You said billion. Right. So we're, billion. we're talking billions of fish, mm. enough to blacken the river with fish Hmm. and um, we think we have a uh, it's been demonstrated already in several places around the state that this can be done around the world really so those rivers that have been reopened either through fishways or dam removal um, recover quickly especially with river herring Um, salmon are another story and need different things than what what river herring do so but when we're talking about open rivers, we're talking about uh, the Kennebec, um, Penobscot. Exactly. Um, so we've, we've got success stories elsewhere, and you're asking the question, why couldn't that happen here? That's right. And it's, it's also shad, smelt, tomcod, sea lamprey, um, sturgeon, potentially. So there are fish now in places where they haven't been in upwards of or uh, about 200 years in the Kennebec and the Penobscot because of the the fishways and the dam removals that have occurred there. And as you look at the balance between the value of the fisheries and the value of the energy being generated, um, like I say, we're looking for ways for to create win-win mm. solutions, which have been demonstrated, say, on the Penobscot most recently. So uh, fishways are not a recent invention. Um, I think you've got some records that show um, kind of state of Maine holding up fishways early in, in the early days and saying this is a great way to, to, to do it. Right, right. So this, this is not a new story. This is just the latest chapter in, in a very, very long story, in fact, going way back into 
Europe to the days of the Magna Carta. Hmm. It was spelled out specifically, thou shall create fish passage when you build a dam. However, in, when this dam was built, the dam that we're talking about on the Union River, um, that law that came through a series of changes over time was ignored. And in 1907, the dam in Ellsworth was built without a fishway. That is, by the way, the year in which dynamite was outlawed as a practice of fishing on our coast of Maine. So when you look back at the records, you start to see how people were treating the fisheries and thinking about the fisheries at that particular point in time. So the structure is, um, has been modified a number of times to allow for, we're not, we're not only, when, with migratory fish, of course they have to go upstream and then they come back downstream again. So not only does the structure have to allow them to swim up, but then they have to get back past the turbines on the way down. And what we see happening here in Ellsworth, in which we documented last fall, right around Halloween, was um, a, a massive fish kill there where those fish that were trying to come back downstream were going through the turbines. And that includes adult eels, American eel, um, you know, three feet long, 20 years old, had managed to crawl up, crawl up over the dam, the 70-foot-tall dam, as a young elver, saved 20 years, come back out to go to the Sargasso Sea to spawn, only to get chopped up in a, in a hydroelectric mm. facility right there, which we documented. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that and what's mm. come as a result of mm. that. Mo, just to bring you in, um, what's, what, what's the, the kind of the purpose or the idea behind the Union Salmon Association? Um, you you uh, have been in existence for a number of years. You've got um, um, people who have been working on this. What are you working on? Well, the Union Salmon Association was established in 1992 um, when the last relicensing process went through. And at that time, we were really pushing for a fish ladder. And, uh, you know, we'd still like to see a fish ladder or improve, and especially improve downstream migration as well. Um, especially, you know, looking at what Dwayne saw last October, the, the eel kills in particular, and looking at the age composition of the alewives returning, we're not getting downstream migration of adult alewives either. So all the downstream migration is pretty well nil, and the upstream um, migration is all trap and truck. And so... Um, there could be some improvements on all aspects of that. Mm. And uh, your members are primarily uh, people who um, fish for recreation. You're not part of the industry side of, of the eelwife um, harvesters or the eel harvesters. You're looking at recreational fishing. Yes, yes. I mean, we're concerned about you know the the potential for the you know, rec you know for the commercial fisheries as well. And uh, you know, the city of Ellsworth gets some monies out of this, and and uh, you know that's that that's that's going to help pay for part of these. You know, part of these improvements, I would hope, but uh, the most of the people on the Union Salmon Board are, or or we're old salmon fishermen, uh -huh. and uh, you know they'd like to see them come back, and and anything that's uh, improvement on the rivers, you know beneficial for all of us. Great. I'll uh, just remind listeners, we're talking about the Union River um, in Ellsworth and all of Hancock County, uh, talking about fish and dams with our guests here in the studio, Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation and Mo Lambden of the Union Salmon Association. Um, let's go now by phone to Ann Hayden. Ann is with the Downey's Fisheries Partnership. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ann. 
Thank you for having me, Ron. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the, the uh, fisheries partnership and this connection to the marine side of things. Dwayne has talked about um, the fish who swim both upstream and downstream to, to go into salt water. Your partnership is looking at that big picture. Yes, um, and Dwayne has alluded to that a little bit, um, and I love the fact that he uh, threw out the, the billions of fish, which I, I hope gets... Um, listeners' attention that it is billion with a B of, of juvenile fish that um, could be exiting the Union River every year. And the reason that that's important is that we have learned recently that the, the juvenile uh, river herring, they're an important component of the coastal ecosystem and uh, that are a key uh, to restoring our um, ground fisheries, which have been absent from eastern Maine for over 20 years now. So ground fisheries, we're talking about cod and haddock? and Cod this. and haddock, exa mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's the Downey's Fisheries Partnership? What, what do you hope to accomplish? How are you structured and, and funded and so on? So the Downey's Fisheries Partnership is a collaboration of a bunch of groups in eastern Maine, that have come together around the idea of restoring fisheries, both riverine and coastal, based on our new knowledge that those, those two fisheries are very um, connected ecologically and we can't restore one without the other. So it, it means that um, there, there isn't any one group that can tackle a problem on that scale. So that was the reason for forming the um, Down East Fisheries Partnership. I actually work for Manomet, which is a nonprofit that uh, promotes conservation, uh, business sustainability, and science education. And my job for Manomet is to coordinate the Down East Fisheries Partnership and work with groups like Down East Salmon Federation, the Union Salmon Association, um, the Penobscot East Resource Center, the Sunrise County Economic Council, uh, the Maine Seacoast Mission, et cetera. We have a very um, broad collaboration of groups working together on our goal of restoring fisheries. Our, our vision is that the communities of eastern Maine can sustain themselves forever by fishing. Hmm. And so the Union River is, is a piece of that. So the, the, an interesting partnership. Um, why would uh, the uh, Maine Seacoast Mission um, be a part of your work? The mission is, uh, as I hope your, your listeners are aware, is a, just a, a phenomenal organization that provides uh, social and pastoral and educational services to communities in eastern Maine. And their, uh, Scott Planting, their executive director, has uh, seen that the work that we're doing to restore fisheries presents an opportunity for addressing issues of poverty in eastern Maine um, that is uh, a very viable um, one. And as we, we like to um, think about it as the, quote, stay options uh, for kids who are going through high school in eastern Maine, many of whom now um, are encouraged by their families to leave the area in order to find economic opportunity. So we're, we're hoping to restore what's traditionally been the lifeblood of the coastal economy so that um, these, these kids have a stay option. 
So one of the the of the species that um, Dwayne has mentioned in terms of uh, passage on the Union River is the the alewife. Um, if you could give us a, a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of the alewife, and then um, uh, we'll let you go and, and talk with some other folks. But um, talk about the alewife and in its connection both to the to the fisheries um, in freshwater and and salt. So the the alewife, on, on the one hand, it's it's a lowly little fish. It's not something that sport fishermen are particularly interested in or that you often see in restaurants. Uh, you know, it's a little bit bony, a little bit oily, but it is the lifeblood of the system that um, we call the Down East uh, coastal and riverine ecosystem. Humans sometimes make a distinction between rivers and the ocean, between land and water. Well, this system really we need to think of it all as one and the alewives are the lifeblood of of that system pumping nutrients back and forth in in the system so that's why our focus is on this wonderful little fish um, it is also good for lobster bait and it is if you if you smoke them as Dwayne will tell you about they do taste pretty good but the key is that they're they drive the the food system the food chain in the region, and that's why we're we're focused on restoring them. And and it's it's not just in big rivers like the Penobscot, or even relatively big rivers like the Union, but they um, they'll spawn in any stream that leads to a pond or a lake. And I understand that the uh, Downey's Fisheries Partnership has commissioned a study that will help us better understand um, the, the economic benefits um, to the, the natural systems. Tell us a little bit about that study and what you're hoping to accomplish. Yes. Well, as Dwayne uh, pointed out, what we understand about these systems um, has changed over time. So we now know more about the role of alewives in the system. We also, the, the role of the, um, of the dam in producing energy has changed dramatically over the life of the license of this of this dam. So we've hired uh, Guillermo Herrera, a uh, uh, professor of economics at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, to do an assessment of the potential benefits of uh, improving fish passage on the Union. And he's looking at the power side, he's looking at um, the fish side, and he's done a fair amount of work on the Kennebec and the Androscoggin Rivers on the link between restoring alewives and the um, uh, coastal groundfish population. So it will help us to, to um, reassess the trade-offs that you inevitably make when you make decisions about how to use a river. And uh, we're looking forward to his findings um, later this year. Mm. And anything else you want to add about the, the fisheries partnership? Well, I think that people um, should know that fisheries are a, uh, a link, a human environment link that uh, where the where there's they're really integrated. People and the, the coastal and river ecosystems are a system in themselves, and they're not separate. And if you if you eat fish, you are part of that system. <laughs> and to think about that when you when you choose um, 
what fish you're going to eat, and we encourage you to eat fish <laughs> because that's how we're going to restore our both the coastal economy and the and the coastal ecosystem. Great, and I think you have a, um, a website. Um, folks can learn more about the Downeys Fisheries Partnership. Yes, downeysfisheries.org. Thank you, Ron. Great. Great. Well, thanks, Anne, for being with us. If you can, if you'd like to listen to the rest of the show um, online uh, here at weru.org, you're welcome to. And then um, give us a call if if we're missing some point that you'd like to bring up later. Will do. Thank you. That was Anne Hayden of the Downey's Fisheries Partnership and Manometa the conservation group. Um, we're here in the studio with uh, Dwayne Shaw and Mo Lambden. We're talking about the Union River fish and dams. Um, Dwayne, um, tell us about the, the first dam. Why was it created? I understand that, that um, the Union was, um, Ellsworth was an was a industrial town in the old days, um, the early days, um, and power was the primary purpose. Yeah, well, in fact, it's, the story is not really about industrialization so much as elect, rural electrification for summer people. So it was originally called the Bar Harbor and Union River Hydroelectric Project. And it was purposed for generating electricity to send to Bar Harbor and to the Blue Hill Peninsula to attract and support a summer industry, summer homes, and so on. So I think what may have been occurring at that point in time, people were coming from the cities, of course, to the coast. It was cooler, cleaner in the summer. But they were used to having electricity where they came from and promoted this idea that um, more industry would come if we had or more summer use would come. So those listeners who are are, uh, (laughs) tied into us right now, the fact that we're here in the summer talking about this, um, there's a direct connection between um, the heritage of summer use of the coast of Maine and the the impact on on the Union River. Ultimately, so, up, up until that time, then power was was uh, direct power. Um, that's right. and so on were using the river. That's right. But it wasn't electrical power. That's right. There were saw there was a sawmill at this location owned by the Black family of the Black House Mansion, which was the lumber mm-hmm. um, sort of mogul that was that first industrialized the logging industry here. And there were there were millions and millions of board feet of lumber that were were sawed there. And some of those periods of time, there were fishways, and sometimes there weren't. So there, the decimation of the fish had begun to occur very early on. And the Union River was was um, a, one of the biggest sources of lumber going out of Maine for many, many years, I think second only to the Penobscot for a period of time. Mm. And you mentioned earlier, you um, helped um, me understand that the dam was not built for for uh, um, um, flood control, but it was it, it caused a flood. Actually, yeah, so there are two dams that we're talking about here, and this is important. So the, the Leonard Lake Dam in Ellsworth is 70 feet tall. It impounds about 90 acres of water. It was built in a gorge, so that was the opportunity to generate the, the head needed. However, they quickly realized in by 1923 that they weren't holding enough water back. There was no way to hold water back, so they wanted to manage the water, and this was Bangor Hydro at the time, by this point in time. And they went to the biggest wetland in the region, which was the Oxbow up, which is now called Graham Lake, and built a 25-foot-tall dam there that's 550 feet across, and it impounds about 9,000 acres of water, and which is manipulated solely for the purpose of generating electricity. That is its purpose. It is not a lake. It is an impoundment 
artificial impoundment. However, the first year they built it, it washed out. And it caused what was, as I've read, the largest human-induced uh, disaster in Maine's history, which was a massive flood that came ripped down through the Union River and took out the Route 1 bridge. Uh, many of the, the wharves washed away, and that was in 23. And it, then it was rebuilt over a number of years um, better, but it did not actually hold, so they, they've continued to reinforce it. So if you go to the Graham Lake Dam now, you see a massive wing that's built below it, which is um, there because it was beginning to fail as well. And in fact, the lower dam, the Leonard Lake Dam in Ellsworth, downtown Ellsworth, just behind the city hall, or sorry, the uh, the county seat building and the jail and so on, that that structure was originally built as a hollow structure, and it was beginning to fail, and it was filled with concrete in the, I think, the late 80s. And there have been some modifications just recently to, so here we are, it was built in 07, 1907, and in 2015, downstream modifications have only been made just um, within the last few months because of the fish kills that we documented last fall. Mm. So this is an ongoing story. Well, we'll return to the relicensing question in a few minutes, but let's go now to um, talk with Edward Bassett. Um, Edward is the um, uh, environment with the environmental department of the uh, uh, Pleasant Point uh, Reservation Passamaquoddy Tribe. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ed. Thank you. Ed, tell us a little bit about your own background and um, how you got involved in, in uh, environmental work. I uh, uh, understand that you do a lot of mapping, and um, a lot of that is directed towards your interest in the fisheries. Yes, I was first hired uh, by the Passamaquoddy tribe to do GIS work, and my training is in that um, uh, multimedia and um, GIS and then my job um, basically uh, changed to include Elwive uh, restoration work in the St. Croix. And uh, kind of somewhat GIS has taken a back seat. Uh, I still do it, but <clears throat> a lot of my work now is in uh, restoration work with the St. Croix and also other restoration work within the Passamaquoddy traditional homeland, which... Uh, extends from the traditional Aboriginal homeland is from the uh, Union River all the way up to the La Pro River from from the Union to the La Pro is quite an extensive uh, homeland and it, all the riv all the watersheds in between those two watersheds uh, the Passamaquoddy homeland and um, I understand that the that the uh, um, the tribe has has looked at alewives because of the opportunity to open up the St. Croix River, and that's that's happened in a in a small way. Um, tell us a little bit more about that story. Well, uh, the tribe um, was <clears throat> back uh, several years ago um, asked to support blocking the St. Croix. Uh, and the blockage was to to basically keep out elwives from the upper reaches of the St. Croix. And the tribe's um, policy was not clear at the time. And part of the reason was because of the destruction of the St. Croix in terms of uh, pollution and 
dams and fishways and you name it. There's just been a lot of um, basically destruction in the St. Croix over the past 500 years, and as a result, the institutional memory of the tribe for alewives was not clear. Mm. Uh, we have oral history that tells us a lot about our past, mm-hmm. and when we went to go see some of the elders, we were asking the elders about alewives and whether or not they were actually um, native to the upper reaches of St. Croix, and there was not a whole lot of information from the elders because we understand now that the uh, fishways, uh, the dams, did not have fishways for multiple generations. As a result of that, we started to lose that institutional memory. Mm. And when, when we go to see our elders they didn't see the fish in the river. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> we had to rely on other sources of information and some of the um, historical documentation about the St. Croix, about the uh, native uh, fish species in the river. And one of the things that we found was an archaeological dig that was done at Mud Lake Stream, which is up um, between Spednick Lake and East Grand, which is 100 miles or 80 miles inland, where they found calcified alewife bones in the fire hearths mm. of an archaeological dig that's about three to 4,000 years old, which mm. is evidence of alewives present in the upper reaches of St. Croix. But since then, we found other evidence, too, mm-hmm. as well. But that one, you can't really dispute that. You know, that science has found bones in a... 3,000-year-old hearth. <laughs> pretty impressive, pretty impressive. Ed, tell us a little bit about your connection to um, alewives now. What What is your hope um, in, in all of the homeland um, that you have described, um, including the St. Croix, but moving um, uh, uh, west to the, to the Union? Well, the tribe's mission, um, as we've started to focus on getting away so much from the um, the casino pursuits of casino and all those other things that we've been pursuing lately, and we're starting to go back to our roots. And part of that is to take a hard look at the environment and to see what the environment, what, the, what, what that offers up today, mm-hmm. as opposed to what it used to provide in the, in the past. And you just think about, in the past, the tribe has, not just this tribe, but all Native people in this region, has been able to thrive uh, from the bounty of nature, um, thrive well, and, and not have to work hard for food. Um, actually had a lot of leisure time in the past. Mm. So it wasn't really a whole uh, a rough, rough existence, if people might think it was, but it wasn't. And so we're looking at this and we're saying, what can we do to improve things for the future generations so that there will be food? Food security is the issue for us, food sovereignty. Uh, food security so that the future generations can return to the ecosystem to be able to survive. We're looking at it from a long-term focus where 
if you think about it, the environment provided for us, and then in a brief span of time, four or five hundred years, maybe even less than that, a couple hundred years, these systems have become, as what Dwayne was talking about, broken, and we need to fix them so that they can work again and be productive for the future generations. We've been here for 500 generations <laughs> in this land. Mm. We are looking for, looking out for the future generations, not just my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, which is only three or four generations. We're looking seven generations, ten generations, 70 generations. We're looking for the hundred generations in the future. And the only way to do that is to really get serious and committed to improving the situation in the environment. We can all work together, and I know this because, you know, I'm working with Duane and others, all the other NGOs. The tribe is reaching out to the federal government. The feds are involved. And on some level, even the state is knows what needs to be done. But we have uh, a lot ahead of us as far as uh, work goes to um, join together with our neighbors and our partners to fix the environment for our future generations, not just tribal members, mm -hmm. but everyone. Ed, you give such a powerful vision um, to this work, and I just congratulate you for um, helping shape this partnership, this work that's going forward, um, and, and, and the connection you're making. So thank you. Um, we'll let you go, and, and again, if you want to listen online, um, then you can uh, give us a call back if we're missing some key part. Okay. All right. Thanks so thank much. You. Thank you. Ed Bassett um, of the Pleasant Point Reservation uh, Environment Department, Passamaquoddy Tribe uh, in down East Maine, but um, recognizing that um, their homeland really included this part of the world, the Union River and, and Hancock County. Um, I'll open up our phone lines now if you'd like to participate in our conversation about the Union River, fish and dams with our guest, uh, Mo Lambden of the Union Salmon Association and Dwayne Shaw of the Down East Salmon Federation, um, please give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. Dwayne, we'll pick it up again uh, with you in terms of the relicensing process. Um, remind us um, who, who, who gives licenses and, and how does it all work? <clears throat> yeah, it's... Um it's a complicated process. It's much like a court proceedings in, in many ways. So in order to have standing, you have to have to uh, provide information in a certain method. And this is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that licenses hydropower dams. So unlike our tiny dams that are spotted all over the landscape, old mill sites, for instance, which are in mo almost every town, those dams which are licensed to produce energy today are licensed under this federal process. So it's a separate process than you might go through for a small dam that doesn't produce energy. So at the federal level, there's a um, licensing procedure, and we're engaged in that process and becoming quickly acquainted with what is needed to, to do that well. So we've um, engaged some support from Doug Watts, um, who's been involved with, for instance, the Edwards Dam 
in the Penobscot. And so we're working in partnership with a number of organizations that have experience with this. But the process of relicensing a dam um, takes about between three and five years. Um, The last time this dam was relicensed back in the late 80s, it ultimately went through the process and then it all went to federal court. And U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, lost their effort to attempt to get a fishway built at that point in time. Well, things have changed since then quite a bit. The the knowledge of the collapse of our fisheries is even great, more greatly increased. In in the um, advent of the listing of Atlantic salmon as an endangered species, so those things bear upon the the licensing process this time around. So the licensing process is underway. Um, people can participate in it, and I would encourage them to get in touch with us in terms of ways in which they could participate. Um, We've been hearing from people at Graham Lake, um, landowners around Graham Lake, Leonard's Lake, various stakeholders are interested in this process. And we've been documenting the fish um, fish migration issues associated with the dam, which have never been documented before. So, for instance, our photos of eels that were cut in pieces coming through the dam on their downstream migration were sent to the federal to Washington, D.C. through this process, and that resulted in a um, in a um, compliance violation record that was that was issued. And after 108 years of existence, the dam is now being modified slightly. However, um, additional modifications, substantial additional modifications, are going to be needed, which means that we need more documentation. So. Okay, let's let's take a phone call from one of our listeners. Perhaps they've got a question for you. Um, give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, yeah, I, I'm Ed, and I'm from Bar Harbor, and Ron and I used to be on the Bar Harbor Planning Board together. Um, we do have, uh, we own a camp up on Graham Lake, and we have maybe about 700 feet of uh, waterfront on Graham Lake there on the, on the southeast uh, corner of the lake on 179. Uh, there have been some changes. We've been there for about 10, 12 years. Um, we noticed that uh, there used to be like alewives or shad, you know, little ones, maybe about... Uh, uh, inch, inch and a half in the winter, they might freeze up along the edge. Don't see any of those those anymore. Um, there's, as far as the, the height of the lake, of course, folks that know Union uh, and Graham Lake, it goes up and down, not with the tide, but with the, the generating of probably electricity for air conditioners and somewhere during the summer. Uh, I guess we're trying to figure out if comes to show there's a landowner along Graham Lake. I guess what you're at, what I would be asking is, are you looking to totally remove all the dams, or would you like or be happy to just put fishways in? Um, I, of course, there's a landowner there. To, if it went back to the river, the, the river would be out about a half a mile from where we are <laughs> now. Uh, just as far as the water levels, just a little history. And uh, lately, in the past two years, I'm not sure if it's with the newest owner of the of the electric company, but the, the 
the water is kept very high all spring, early summer. There's a lot more erosion along the edge. Um, but but like I say the number one question is, are you planning on getting rid of both the dams and turning it back in the river? Or might we still have a coexistence with a lake and fish lake? Great question. Thanks for your call, Ed, from Bar Harbor and Graham Lake. Uh, Dwayne, what's the what's the hope, or, or uh, Mo, what's, what, what are the hopes that you have in terms of the future? Um, Dwayne? Well, what we're looking for is a win-win, and that is our focus is on the fisheries, of course, and, and we would like to see green power generated as well. Graham Lake is not fitted with a generating station at all. There's the potential to do that, and that's been, um, I think, engineered planned for potentially so there's some so the Graham Lake Dam again is just to hold water back and then let it go appropriately so that the downstream dam can generate electricity that's right. consistently right the downstream dam is licensed as a peaking station so they're they are allowed to put energy in onto the grid when the prices go up and they can manipulate Graham Lake to an extent of about 11 feet I think at at their whim, if you will, or or when they see the opportunity. And it is an impoundment built specifically to generate electricity, not as a recreational resource and not as a fisheries resource. So it's important to keep that in mind. And they, Brookfield Power, Brookfield Assets Management, a very large multinational company based in Canada, owns that structure now. And their investment is um, viewed, as I've, I've been told by them, um, as, as an investment for power generation. And when that balance begins to tip, then they perhaps would look for an, an exit strategy. Um, if that structure is to be maintained forever, that will cost money. And someone is going to have to, to take that into consideration. If there could be power generated and fish, that would be the best of both worlds, and we found that that can be can be done if we're creative and and we look at this um, sort of from the big big picture of of the need for recovery of our fisheries and. So you the, could potentially find some allies in the uh, residents of Graham Lake and, and uh, Leonard Lake um, if they look at it as a win-win. Yes, we've been hearing from a lot of. A lot of people at Graham Lake, and this is uh, something that's been discussed for many, many years. A lot of people weren't necessarily aware when they purchased properties that that the lake wasn't natural and that it was manipulated so heavily, and that that as a result uh, the water can go away just like the tide almost. And um, so, and there's been a lot of erosion as a result because it's very shallow, and the wind action will will begin to erode has eroded. Um, actually acres of property into people's um, private land we've been aware of. And so there are a number of issues with water quality as well because it kicks up the sediments, and you'll notice the Union River is often very brown, um, and that's the result of that. So if there could be – what we're looking at this is as a blank slate, an open book at this point in time. We know that fish passage is going to need to be improved Graham Lake Dam does not have fish passage in it. It doesn't have hydropower in it. So there's an opportunity perhaps to do both there. And this would be uh, modeled um, 
in loose terms, perhaps after what's been done on the Penobscot River. And the lower dam is so tall that building fish passage around that, both upstream and downstream, is going to be very, very costly. And, it, and Brookfield Power Company has been analyzing this to determine where is the, the threshold of investment versus um, income. income. Right. So it's all about the, the balance sheet. And how much power is generated? I think you've done some homework on that. Yes, it's um, it's the equivalent of about, and I have it written down here, about 3,000 homes um, usage per year, 29,907 megawatt hours, which equates to about 3,000 households. So um, it's in the big scheme of things, it's a tiny fraction of the amount of energy being used in the state and in in the region and this is pumped into the into the regional grid it's it doesn't it's not a direct line to mm-hmm. a household in mm-hmm. in the union river watershed so when you begin to look at again the balance of other energy sources uh, pumping into that grid in fact what we're seeing is is a move toward solar farms wind farms as you know there's a, a new mm-hmm. newish wind farm in the watershed at, at the Bull Hill development that's producing a lot of electricity as well. So there's, um, this is not currently what we would call green energy. Hmm. I'll just break in to remind our listeners that they can participate in our conversation as well, one 625 9378 or locally 469 as we talk about the Union River fish and dams. We're talking with Wayne Shaw and Mo Lambden. Mo is with the Union Salmon Association and Dwayne, the Down East Salmon Federation. So the uh, the relicensing process, uh, as you say, Dwayne, is uh, governed by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It's a federal organization, agency, very st- strict procedures. Um, you're trying to learn more about that. Who are some of the partners that you might engage to, to figure this out? Right. So we've enlisted, as I've mentioned, Doug Watts, and Doug has been working for many years with Friends of the Kennebec and has uh, decades of history in working with uh, the federal process around licensing. And so we're, we're quickly coming up to speed. And there are, there's also the main, main rivers, Landis Hudson at Main Rivers, so a network of river conservation organizations around the state which assist each other in, with uh, information and resources. So that's been very helpful. We've been having some discussions with Conservation Law Foundation um, and, of course, all of our local partners, the, um, all of the local stakeholders we've begun um, discussions with as well. Mm. And, and um, is it a, a guarantee that once you have a, a dam that's producing electricity that you get that right forever? Or is there a, a, a way to kind of look at some of these other environmental uh, fisheries benefits? Well, this is, a, it's, this is an engineering puzzle. It's an, it's an ecological puzzle. And we've, because of the, the history here, sort of backed ourselves into a corner. So we've, we've built uh, infrastructure around a, a um, um, impoundments, for instance, that are have to be maintained now if we want to have that that particular impoundment. And the question comes, who who pays for it, and what are the cost benefits of maintaining that over the long term? Mm. And these are not 
um, insignificant assets or or features on the landscape. So um, I'm not sure if I've answered your, your well, question. Well, it sounds like um, the relicensing process is another chance to look at this equation. Exactly. Right. This is the opportunity. So these licenses, and this is, is particularly important I hadn't mentioned, these licenses are between 25 and 40-year licenses. Right. So this is the time, the opportunity in our generation to make a difference for the for the long-term future of this. And as we've been told by folks at the National Marine Fisheries Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, this may be the most important relicensing in Maine in, in the careers of many of the individuals involved hmm. of those agencies. And that's because of the history where it had ended up in federal court and uh, no fish passage was required at one point in time just the, during the last license this time around we think we've we've got the makings of a of a of a win-win mm. so we have been talking with Brookfield about this and uh, beginning to sit down with them and look at really what are the constraints of the of the um, facility currently and what are the, our wishes long term and where can we meet? And can we, through the federal process, make that happen? Hopefully it doesn't end up in court, but that we can come up with a creative, um, cooperative way forward. Uh, time will tell. Right. The federal process, their license application is due uh, December, the end of this year. Their actual license application will go forward. There are some studies underway, including now a study about downstream eel passage as a result of the fish kills that we documented last last uh, Halloween. Mm. So, um, uh, again, we might have time for a, another phone call if people want to participate in our conversation, one 625 9378 So if folks wanted to learn more, um, both about uh, the Union Salmon Association and, and uh, the Down East Salmon Federation and this relicensing process, how would they do that? Uh, Mo, tell us a little bit about more how they get in touch with the, the Union Salmon Association. Well, we actually really don't have a website, so, you know. You're a fisherman. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of folks um, probably have my phone number. I'm in the phone book, um, and um, so we are available. Um, the easiest way to get in touch with us is probably to go through Down East Salmon Federation and have the message relayed back to us. Um, they do have a website, and uh, maybe Dwayne will pass on that, that email link and, and phone number. Great. That's right. If... Uh, you look for Downey Salmon Federation, you'll find our website online. It's mainsalmonrivers.org. And we're, again, n not an organization simply focused on Atlantic salmon. We're looking at all of the migratory fish and the water quality of, and the connection between these rivers and, and the ecosystem, mm. the greater ecosystem, including the, the commercial um, side of things in, in the marine in the marine world. As Ed Bassett said, we're, we're not really thinking about ge the generations immediately ahead of us, our grandchildren and, and great-grandchildren. This is a, a long-term process. Um, it, um, Mo, if you could describe what you hope as a, as a fisherman and as a member of the larger community, what are you, some of your hopes for um, the future of the Union River? Well, I'd, I'd really like to see, you know, substantial uh, increase in the number of alewives going up and, like, Dwayne alluded to, you know, the potential for this river is, is not uh, a harvest like this year. They've trucked uh, 321,000 fish upstream. The potential for natural runs is well over um, a million and could possibly be greater than two million. 
that are going to go up there and spawn. These and, are adults uh, going upstream. These are adults going upstream. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, the potential um, generations that those fish could produce is uh, enormous for the groundfish fisheries off the coast. Um, we do have to work on downstream migration um, of those adults because we're not seeing age compositions that indicate that they're successfully going over the dam to return. I mean, I've studied herring for years, and some of those fish can be upwards of 20 years old. So we're not seeing those returns, so they're not making it back over the dam going out either. Hmm. So I think in, in the other term, now that the elvers have become a major fishery on the river, if those fish didn't have to go up that rock face um, and face the predation that they do, uh, I think we'd see a, a bigger population of elvers come back too, which is certainly something the fishermen would generally like to see. So. Mm -hmm. That's about all I have right now. Great. And, Dwayne, some of your hopes and some of your organizational hopes for um, a project like this? Well, I, I really think that this is about community participation and in our fisheries. And as, as Anne alluded to with the Downey's Fisheries Partnership, which we've been a key member of, right, is about engaging citizens with their environment and the long-term goals of fisheries recovery across the board, whether it be clams and scallops or um, alewives, tomcod, shad, sturgeon, all of these need um, eyes and ears on the ground, and that's what we're attempting to do. And, this, and it requires also our time and our treasure. So we have, have support from hundreds of members, and in fact some anonymous donors um, are helping support our work as well, uh, for instance, on the Union River. Just recently, yesterday, we received a donation, a commitment from an 85-year-old gentleman who was interested in helping us put a fishway into a dam in easternmost Maine, Cobscook um, Bay. So this is near and dear to many people's hearts, and I think creating the mechanism for people to engage in the process is very, very important. And that's what Downey Salmon Federation, the Fisheries Partnership, Maine Rivers, Trout Unlimited, the Atlantic Salmon Federation, we're, we're working together and trying to get people involved. And um, there are many success stories locally. Patton Stream, for instance, is one where uh, a tiny little fishway can be built, you know, seven or eight feet tall, at the, I think at the most there. And we're talking about tens of thousands of alewives mm. running through our towns and streams. And so it's, it's very doable. It's uh, extremely rewarding because, especially with herring, they rebound so quickly. We know that. Smelt can do the same thing. We have um, culvert inventories going on, looking at culverts that are a problem for smelts, for instance, which are we visited over 114 streams from the Bagadoos to the Canadian border in, in the last couple of years. And we're finding multiple locations where we can have immediate in impact and people can invest in their in their backyard and the streams and rivers that we all enjoy and, and we'll supply the the fish for the future and that notion that of uh, that ed bassett shared with us of reconnecting ourselves with the environment exactly. that has supported us for so long exactly um remind us again your your website downey salmon federation it's Right, mainsalmonrivers.org, Downey Salmon Federation. In fact, we're holding an open house um, on the 16th next week at our at a former hydropower plant in East Machias, which is the home of what we call the East Machias Aquatic Research Center. 
which is a, a wonderful facility that we've created for fisheries, uh, community fisheries uh, partnerships. We have another in Columbia Falls, but uh, next week we'll have an open house and with music, and uh, we try to make this fun and and uh, and it's easy to do when you get out on the rivers. Great. So next week, the 16th at uh, East Machias. Um, well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns and tune in to the fourth Friday of the month for Coastal Conversations with my colleague Natalie Springle. Our theme music is a medley from Karnak on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks so much to our guests in the studio, um, Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation, Mo Lambden of the Union Salmon Association, thanks to you both, Ann Hayden of the Downey Fisheries Partnership and Manomet joined us by phone, as well as Edward Bassett, who is um, the, with the Environmental Department at Pleasant Point, uh, the Passamaquoddy tribe. Thanks to our uh, listeners, thanks to our underwriters, Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support 